Please be seated. <clears throat> if you're just joining us, we're in the second week of a new series for the summer on the book of Genesis. Actually, Genesis chapters 1 through 11 that tell literally the start of the story of the Bible, which is also the start of the story of us and our lives, of God, and addresses all the big questions. Who are we? Who is God? What are our lives supposed to be about? Why are we here so we're looking at Genesis 1 through 11 this summer. Um, if you'd like to be turning there, you'll find that on page 1 this morning. We read all, all the way through Genesis 1 last week. This week we're going to look, specifically we're going to concentrate on what happens in the sixth day of creation. So we will uh, pick up with verse 24. We pray for us and we'll dive right in. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning from many different places. Some of us uh, may be glad to be here, I'm glad to be here to worship, to listen, to engage with you. Some of us very distracted by the cares of the world, by health concerns, by financial concerns, by relational concerns. Some of us may be invited here today and not quite sure why or how we got to be here. But Father, whatever our case might be this morning, we are here ultimately because you have invited us and called us to be here. You, you brought us here this morning. And part of that purpose is that we might hear your word from Genesis chapter 1. So we pray that you'd open it to us right now. Would you speak to us? Would you use it for our good, for your glory, and to change us? And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 through the end of the chapter. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. To every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning. The sixth day. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So to it we, we turn this morning. Let, let me ask you this question. Uh, what is it in all of creation that most, uh, that most captures your imagine? That just takes your breath away? That most amazes you? Uh, maybe it's the mountains in all their grandeur. Maybe it's the ocean, all the its immensity. Maybe it's an amazing sunset, or the intricacy of a spider's web as the the sun is rising and strikes the dew 
that's caught in its design. Or maybe it's the dozens upon hundreds upon thousands of stars that you see on a dark and clear night. What is it in, in those moments, maybe those moments of clarity, that most cries out to you, there must be a God? What is it that most captures you, that most amazes you, that most shows you his fingerprint, the evidence of his existence and his goodness? What is it? Well, the Bible's actually got an answer to that. And so we come across in Genesis 1 this morning. What in all of creation most reveals God? We do. We do. And that's the point of what uh, the writer of Genesis is getting to in all of chapter 1, really. That we as humanity, men and women together, that we are the image of God. That we are the crown of God's creation. Of all that he made. So that's what we're going to look at this morning as we see that in Genesis 1. We're going to look at just these two things. Why, why are we the crown of creation and, and what are the implications of that for us as we think about the world around us? So first, why are we the crown of God's creation? This, this passage we read this morning, day 6, this is the, the culminating day of God's work of creation. If you were here last week or if you glance back through Genesis 1, you see you know, day 1, God creates light. He says, let there be light, and there was. Day two, he separates the waters from the sky. Day three, he separates dry land uh, from the oceans. Day four, he creates the sun and the moon and the stars. Day five, the birds and the fish. And now here, day six, the, the animals on the land and us. Creation of mankind comes on the sixth day. That means there is a profound connection for us with everything else that, that lives on land. You know, here we have all the animals being created, and then us. There's a connection on the sixth day. Uh, Ingrid Newkirk, who was the co-founder of PETA, the People for Ethical Treatment of Animals, about 20 years ago, said this in a newspaper article. She said, a rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. They are all animals. Day six. All the animals are created, and so are we. There is a connection there right down to the genetic level, but there is more than that. And what she said uh, falls far short of what Genesis 1 tells us about who we are as people. We're created on the sixth day, but we come last in all of creation. The pinnacle of everything God is making. And look, at right before God creates mankind, what does he do? There is this, there's this, this significant pause, unlike anything else that happens in the five and a half days that happened before that. Verse 26, what do we see? He says, then God said, let us make man in our image in, after our likeness. Let us make man. Suddenly we have God speaking, not just speaking words of creation, but speaking these, these words of planning. You read that and you think, well... Who is he talking to, right? You know, let us, let us make man in our image. Well, uh, Christian and Jewish uh, believers and, and scholars have looked at this for thousands of years now. Here, here are a couple of the options. One is that maybe, in fact, God is addressing the heavenly court. And that does happen sometimes in Scripture. God is speaking to the angels in the heavenly court. They are his audience. And he says, let us create. It's possible. One of the ways that may fall short, though, is... Nowhere else in Scripture do we see that the angels are part of the creative process or that they too are in the image of God. Some others have taken this as being uh, essentially the royal we. You know, in other words, an, another way of saying, uh, I will create. You know, when the queen sits down and says, we will have tea now. <laughs> she's not inviting you, she's inviting you to go get the tea for her, right? The royal we. 
or maybe, and even this, this might be more likely, it's, it, it's, it's an address of self-deliberation as God pauses at this moment of creation, speaking to himself even and says, let us create. Here's what is next. Let's pause and then see what comes from my hand and my word next. Now, Christians for, uh, uh, for long have rightly looked back at this verse and from the perspective of the New Testament as we see God revealed even more fully to us in the New Testament. Not only is simply a, um, uh, the oneness of God, but the plurality of God. That God, in fact, exists in Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's right now for us to look back now, though the writer, though the original readers of Genesis would, would likely have not heard these kind of echoes for us, knowing the whole story, to look back and hear in this let us make man in our image. We know a fuller picture of God that he does in fact exist as a trinity, one God in three persons, in communication with himself, in fellowship, in relationship with himself. And you don't understand how that could possibly work, and neither do I. But that's what Scripture teaches us about our God, that he was complete and relational even before he created anything else. That he was perfect. That he had all the relationship that he needed, but out of the overflowing of his goodness, he creates. Not only does he create things and lights and planets and animals and fish and birds, he creates a creature unlike any other. He creates us. So he says, right at this moment of the climax of creation, he says, let us make man. We see that man is created different than anyone else. Mankind, men and women together. It says that they are created in God's image and after his likeness. You see that in 26 and then down in 27. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Likely what's going on here, when it talks about both likeness and image, that these are overlapping concepts. It's not as if there are two parts of us. There's a part of us that's the likeness of God and another part that's the image. Those are overlapping concepts to get at the same idea. And so you usually hear uh, in sermons like this, if you were to read works of Christian theology, you would hear people talking about the image of God, that we sum it up that way, that there is something about mankind that is different. We're created in his image. And this would have been a familiar concept in the ancient Near East where, these, uh, where this text came from. The Hebrew word, for example, for image here is one that shows up several times in Scripture. And it can even mean uh, a word that's used for, for an actual idol, a physical representation of something, a carved image. In the ancient Near East, as people thought about idols, for example, this stone thing that they would have bowed down in worship, perhaps. Uh, in, in the ancient world, it, it wasn't quite as simple as we may be paint it sometimes as if how silly it is that they would bow down to this simple thing that they had just made. Likely a person in the ancient Near East would have thought, you know, this is, this is, a, this is a thing made of stone, but it is, it is an image, it's a representation of the God, and somehow his presence indwells it. It's not the same thing as the God himself, but it connects us with him. It represents him. It shows our God to us is the way an ancient Near Easterner would have thought about it. Somehow this idol is an embodiment of their God. But here you have the Bible speaking into this and saying, no, 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 no. Not stone images representing pagan gods. God speaks into, speaks into creation and says, there is one God and there will be only one image. 
one representation of who that God is. And he says, I'm going to create men and women, mankind. They will be my image. They will image me. They will represent me. They will show me to the world. So he says that we are image bearers of God. And theologians and all of us have, have wrestled with, you know, what exactly does that mean? Because the Bible never clearly defines, here's exactly what God's image is. It's, uh, all kinds of things have been suggested. Maybe it's that we are rational creatures just like God is, that intelligence and rationality is the essence of what it means to be God's image. Or maybe that we're relational beings, that we're in relationship with each other, uh, that we know what that's like because, because we're like God and that we image him somehow in that. There were people who make sense of the world, that we uh, use tools, that we have opposable thumbs, all kinds of things people have proposed that, we are, that explain how we're images of God. But maybe this would be a helpful way for us to kind of get at the totality of what the Bible is saying. When we are created in God's image, it means uh, that we are connected to him by resemblance and by representation and by relationship. Okay, Resemblance, representation, and relationship. First, resemblance. Uh, you know, again, all these things have been suggested. Rationality, morality, our intelligence, making meaning in the world. All of these hit at aspects of what is true about God and what he has created to be true of us as well. That we, uh, that we resemble him. We don't have, that, that we like him, we are rational. That we like him have personhood, that we, like God, have creative power in the world. Now, of course, it's always secondary to God's. It's always derivative of His, but we are like God, and we are created with this capacity to be like Him and to um, engage the world. We know right and wrong as we follow a God, an image of God, who is the definition of what is right and is true. And you might be familiar with the second commandment, and um, it's interesting the way this idea sort of uh, maps onto the second commandment. This comes from, in, from Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, and it says this. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Why? Because you are that image. Because we are that image. So you can't carve some image made out of stone that's going to represent God because that aims way too low. There is a God and he has made himself known and shown in the world and he does it most fully in us, the image of God. We resemble him in some mysterious way. And because of that, because we, are re we resemble him, we represent him. Okay, look at the command that command and blessing that God gives us. He says, um, again, back in verse 26, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. He says, in other words, we have a job to do. Because we are image bearers of God, we have been given a certain place in creation. We've been given a certain job. We represent God. And here's the picture here of God as king over all things. He is the creator. He made everything. And that's what Genesis 1 lays out for us. He is the one and only the true God. He is king. But then what does he do? He creates us in his image, image bearers, as vice regents, as junior kings, as stewards over all that he has made. He says that is your job. You are going to... 
multiplying this earth and you are going to care for and have rule over everything that is. One commentator put it this way. He says, the text is saying that exercising royal dominion over the earth as God's representative is the basic purpose for which God created man. He created us to rule, to rule like him wisely and well in care of creation, in care of each other. That's what we were made for. Those days when you think to yourself, you know, I just feel strangely that I was made for something great. You're right. There's an incredible glory in being men and women created in the image of God. This is the picture that, uh, if you look in your order of worship in Psalm 8, our call to worship, this is the, the psalmist there, he's, he's going back to this very imagery and talking about the role we have been created for. He says, when I, verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Here's the representation. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever pass, passes along the paths of the sea. You see, he says we are here to represent God. We've been given responsibility for all of creation. Says you were to steward it well. So we've been being in God's image. We resemble Him, and consequently, we represent Him. And then the third thing about image, uniquely in all of creation, we are in relationship with Him. We were created for a unique relationship with God. Out of every creature, He says, "You are my image. I am. You are being brought into creation and a relationship with Me that is unlike any other." We said this last week, but fundamentally it means that as human beings, that we are people created to be in relationship with our God. That is what is to stand at the very center of our lives. That is what we were made for. If you were to take this and compare this with other stories from the ancient Near East about creation, you would see how drastically Genesis differs from the stories around it and what it says about who we are and what we were made to be. Uh, there are three great ancient ap- uh, Babylonian creation epics. Uh, in the work of Ataharsis, read that mankind was created to be, a, to be slave labor, to feed the gods, to be there at their every beck and whim. Later, uh, a flood and the Epic of Gilgamesh is sent to obliterate mankind because they have become too, too numerous and too noisy. They become a nuisance, and so they have to be eradicated by the gods. That in the ancient world, this picture of mankind created for the whim of the gods, and against that, Genesis 1 says, no, 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 no. Mankind created in the image of God to resemble him, to represent him, to be in relationship with him. Now you know, and we're getting there in a few weeks, not only do we have in our Bible Genesis 1, but Genesis 3, the fall the fall of mankind away from right relationship with him. But what we see in the Bible is even after the fall, God's image remains in us. It is shattered and broken, but it's not obliterated. God's image in us is mentioned in other places in Scripture, one of which is in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. After the flood, here's what God says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed For God made man in his own image. 
Okay, even after the fall, even in all of our brokenness, that we are still image bearers of God. The picture we have there is maybe of a, a broken mirror. You know what a mirror is like when you can see a reflection and then it's shattered and the light refracts in a thousand different directions, but you can still make out something in there. The image is still there, though broken and fractured. Even after the fall, God's image. Uh, a number of years ago, a movie came out called Contact. It's written, based on a book written by Carl Sagan about making contact with uh, beings from another planet. And he, here at the very end of the movie, uh, here's what the main character, a woman named Ellie Arroway, who's an astrophysicist, she says this to a, a group of children. She says, I'll tell you one thing about the universe, though. The universe is a pretty big place. It's bigger than anything anyone has ever dreamed of before. So if it's just us, just humanity on planet Earth, it seems like an awful waste of space. But what's interesting, Genesis says, this is no waste of space at all. All of God's good creation, created for God's glory and as the setting for God's relationship with us, the crown of God's creation. Okay, so that's just the, that's the first point, that we are, in fact, the crown of God's creation, and that is a good thing. Now, what does that mean for us? Okay, what are the implications of that for us? Okay, let me just, I'm just going to give us three. First is this, the inherent dignity of mankind, that we, all of us, everywhere, all people, image bearers of God, have an inherent dignity that must be respected. A um, number of years ago, Elizabeth, when we were getting ready to move, we were in Chapel Hill getting ready to move so that I could pursue seminary and Elizabeth could pursue uh, uh, family medicine residency. Elizabeth was uh, interviewing at residency programs in family medicine. And there was one major academic center where she was interviewing. And uh, the interviewer was reading you know, her paperwork and saw her involvement in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship as a, as a college student and, and some of the mission-type things that she'd done and inner-city work that she'd done and became just a little suspicious. Okay, here I've got some sort of evangelical Christian on my hands. Uh, what, what does that person think being a doctor is all about? You know, if I bring this person into my program, is this going to be simply uh, some, you know, uh, proselytizer of religious faith and their medicine is simply an excuse for that, for them. So this guy was suspicious, and he ended up asking her some leading questions, but eventually said, you know, I, I see this work you've done, inner city stuff. I see that you've put down, you know, that you, you've been very uh, involved in Christian activities. You know, tell, tell me what you think about being a doctor and how being a Christian might influence what it means for you to be a doctor. And she just said this. Well, She said, well, because of what the Bible teaches teaches us that uh, the men and women are created in the image of God. And so we are people that have dignity. And it means that in every patient interaction, they need, people, our patients need to see that they are being cared for carefully and well and skillfully and that their dignity is being up, upheld even in the hardest of situations. Even in those health situations people get themselves into, that are entirely their own fault because they've been abusing themselves. There's still people who have dignity because God made them that way. The interviewer said, okay, good answer. <laughs> it's one of the implications for us that we, all of us, have dignity. And that stands behind 
the command of Scripture reiterated by Jesus when the lawyer comes to him and says, how do you boil down the law? He says two things. Love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the pillar that undergirds the second half of that commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because we are people created in the image of God. And we're to be pursued and cared for in love. We came across this in our last series in the book of James when James is talking about the wrangling and dissension that happens even within the church. And he said this in James chapter 3. He said, No human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brother, these things ought not to be so. Why? Because we are made in the image of God. And we're to treat each other accordingly. Now here's maybe the challenging point for all of us. That means that the fundamental to who every person is, is that they are a person created in the image of God. That is the starting point, not any other definition. That has to be our primary thought whenever we see someone else. And that means when we see somebody else, what we see first is not Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative, American or foreign, even legal or illegal, black or white, rich or poor, educated or uneducated, successful or unsuccessful, us versus them, none of it takes first place. Anyone we see, we see what stands at the center of that person. They are a person created in the image of God. They have dignity. And so we following Jesus must treat them that way. That's why we care and are called to care about real care, even physical care for those around us, feeding the hungry, caring for the poor, bringing justice to the oppressed, treating our neighbors well, holding our tongues in front of our bosses, holding our tongues when our bosses are not around. All of it. uh, Treating each other with dignity. So the first thing, the dignity of mankind. Second implication for us, the significance of the moment. Significance of the moment. Yesterday, right here in this room, uh, was a wedding. Uh, Brent and Sarah Bickings were married yesterday. You know what marriage is like? It's one of those big moments of life for those who get married. And truthfully, and th- this has come out in this uh, weekly marriage class we're doing, is Paul Tripp, the teacher of that, the uh, one on the video for that class, has made this comment. He says, you know, there, we really don't have that many big moments in our life, if you're really honest about it, okay? Uh, graduating from high school, I don't know. The, you know, you get married, maybe the birth of a child. There, there just aren't that many big moments in life, but there are 10,000 little moments. Because our life, the vast majority of it, is lived in those little moments, those little interactions, those little moments when our thoughts are drifting, those little moments when we're doing the tedious work, all of it. Our life is lived in the little moments. And that means, what does that mean for us as image bearers of God? That means that we carry God's image into those little moments where we really do live almost all of our life. And so all those, ma- those moments really do matter, that we are imaging God in the smallest things that we do. All of life is lived coram Deo, in the, before God's face, that we are in relationship with Him. And so at every moment, not simply here on Sunday mornings, not simply for you, maybe at some time during the day when you open your Bible and read and pray, not simply when you're doing religious activities, 
every moment lived before the face of God, imaging God, interacting with Him before His face, living along the grain of His purposes, or going cross-grain to those. Okay, so first two, dignity of mankind, significance of the moment. And then finally, the, uh, I think another implication of the image of God for us, and lastly, is the drama of God's rescue. The drama of God's rescue. Because you know, we read about mankind being created in God's image, and then we get to chapter 3, which we will get to in a few weeks, and the, the fall, when mankind turns its back on God, what would you do next if you were God? What would you do? I kind of have this picture. I remember being in elementary school in art class, and we'd, we'd make stuff out of clay, and you make a little dinosaur or something. And what happens when it just didn't turn out quite the way you wanted it? You smashed it. <laughs> you pounded it. And then you started all over again. But she knows God doesn't do that. It's not a creation that he simply crumples up and throws over his shoulder when it goes so badly wrong. What does he do? He says, I will not let it go. These are not simply clay figures made in art class. These are my image bearers. Though it's shattered and broken, I will not let it go. I'm coming after them. And so then you have, after chapter 3, the rest of the story of the Bible. God doing exactly that. Pursuing us coming after us, going about his great, slow, patient work of putting the pieces back together again. Calling first Abraham, a person out of pagan nowhere, into relationship with him, forming a people out of Abraham that would come to know God, that would then come and become a blessing for the whole earth, a whole earth restored by the power of God because he will not let us go. We see, because of the image of God, the drama of God's rescue. And we see that come to its crescendo in the person of Jesus. How did God choose to save us, ultimately? Not simply, uh, you know, writing a no longer guilty slip and dropping it down from the heavens. What does he do? He comes here. He takes on flesh himself. takes on all of our humanity on his shoulders. This picture of mankind unfallen in Genesis 1, perfectly imaging God, perfectly representing him as kings over the world, perfectly in relationship with him. We see that restored as it ought to be and even more glorious in the person of Jesus, the one true man. The one human being who really was the image of God, the way we were originally created to be. Jesus comes, God in the flesh, to save us. Colossians 1.15 says this of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And that same Jesus who comes for us who are his people, he is the hope of God's image being restored in us. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8.29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. What does he say? For God's people, he says, I'm coming to conform you to the image of my Son, to make you like Jesus, the one true man. 
coming to make you back into the humanity that you were created to be that has fallen and gone so wrong. I've come back to put the pieces together to restore resemblance, to restore your role in the world, and to restore your relationship with me. Somebody says they're a Christian. What does that mean? Another way of saying that would be part of humanity relationally restored with our God. The pieces put back together. Coming to faith in Christ pulls us into this process as God declares us right, forgiven, and holy. I think he spends the rest of our lives hammering out the dents, making us more and more in actuality to look like the person of Jesus, the one who has saved us. Making us holy in actuality. Restoring us not simply to this image of Adam in Genesis 1, but more gloriously into the image of his son, Jesus. God's image. That's what it is. What it is for us as it makes us think of the dignity of mankind, as it makes us think of the moments of our life, as it makes us think of this culminating part of the story for us, the drama of God's rescue of us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you here at the very beginning of the Bible, just barely trying to get the the fingertips of our minds around this, that we are created in your image. God, I pray for those in here even this morning who don't believe this for themselves, who only see the failure, who only see the struggle, and who may even loathe themselves even this moment. Would you bring the comfort of Jesus into lives right now and reminders of the fact that we are people of dignity that comes from your hand, your creation created good and beautiful, and even now, after the fall, still, though imperfectly, reflecting you. May we embrace you, our Lord and Savior Jesus, the one who came to put the pieces back. And pray for those of us, too, that struggle, as we all do with someone, at least in our lives, to really be able to see the implications of God's image for those around us, that we are people of dignity who are to be treated with dignity. Remind us that is true. Soften our tongues. Soften our judgmental spirits. Remind us, Father, that it is your image that we see even when we look in the face of an enemy. And you, Jesus, said, love your enemies and love your neighbor, all of us created in your image. Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus, and we look to you. Amen.